Nikki Sneed. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 19, verses 1 through 16, which can be found on page 13 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Genesis 19, verses 1 through 16. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Sergey. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd like to make a couple announcements before we dismiss the children. Uh, we uh, are going to start our Advent season in two weeks. So the Thanksgiving weekend Sunday is our first Advent Sunday. It's a season of celebration of Christ's birth and also looking forward to his return. It's an excellent time to invite your neighbors and friends to come to church. Uh, Next week we'll have a special invite you will actually be able to use for that purpose. 
that will list uh, our services, website, and also special events that we have during the holiday season. So I encourage you to use that, pick it up next Sunday, but be praying for somebody to invite. We're also going to open an um, invitation for those that need to be baptized. We may do that during the Advent season. That's a good time for us to do that. Our sermon series is going to be on beginnings. We're going to be looking at each of the four Gospels beginning, how each of the authors start the story of Jesus. So our theme is going to be beginnings, and if baptism is what you need to consider, I'd love to talk with you or any of the elders would love to discuss it with you. We're also starting something new. We're calling it Equip. Equip, the word comes from, <clears throat> excuse me, from uh, Ephesians 4.12, where the elders are supposed to equip the people for the work of the ministry. So we're going to, every other month on a Saturday morning, we're going to gather and talk about discipleship, how we are making disciples. And when I say discipleship, I mean the whole process, including evangelism and and building somebody up in the faith and also raising them to be a leader in the home or in the church or at work. So it's a whole long process of making a disciple. And if you are involved in making disciples, whether it's in your home, discipling your children, at work, witnessing to others, in your community, getting to know your neighbors, or here at the church leading a Bible study or a small group or a Sunday school class, please come to that. Our first one is going to be on Saturday December 5th at 9 o'clock up in the fellowship room. All the information is in your bulletin also on the city, so we encourage you to sign up for that. All right, I got through the announcements. I'm going to dismiss the children. They can go to Children's Church. If you are visiting with us today, you're welcome to send your children that way. There will be somebody in the foyer to help you navigate where they should go next. Children between 2 and 8 years old are welcome to go to Children's Church. Let me pray before we we preach. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that you gave to your people for the glory of your Son, the building up of your church. We pray that you would now make me faithful to preach it well, to exalt Jesus, and that you would encourage us to follow him closely with joy and obedience. We pray in his name. Amen. The gospel has been growing and bearing fruit here at Chatham, but also in North County, and we are grateful to be a part of God's work here. This morning we continue our sermon series on Genesis. We've been looking at the life of Abraham and considering very specifically how God's grace breaks into someone's life and changes them. Today we're looking at the story of the destruction of, of Sodom. And you may be asking yourself, how is he going to handle that? How does grace break into this particular story? Well, if you consider the context, and last week we talked about Abraham's prayer on behalf of the people of Sodom and God inviting him into the conversation about Sodom's sin and the possibility of redemption. We consider that, if we consider that the angels first came to Abraham and he welcomed them and they stayed at his house and only then they went to Sodom where Lot welcomed them and yet the other people in Sodom rejected them. It's clear to me that the story itself turns on this idea of hospitality. The contrast here is between the hostility 
of Sodom and the hospitality of Abraham and Lot, between accepting and rejecting others, between the rescue of Lot and his family and the judgment, the ultimate rejection of the city. So this whole story is in the context of hospitality. This whole story hinges on this idea of accepting or rejecting, and that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Our outline is rather simple. We're going to look first at the hostile city, secondly at the visiting God, and lastly at the hospitable church. Hostile city, visiting God, and the hospitable church. Well, the devil may have gone down to Georgia, but these two angels went down to Sodom. I'm going to eventually hit every demographic and every subculture with a musical reference. So if you don't get it, don't feel bad. Just wait, wait till next week. I'll, I'll get you. The angels went down to Sodom just to see just how wicked they are. Remember, the Lord said, I'm going to destroy the city, but we're going to go and investigate. So their job was to go and see whether the sin of Sodom warranted God's judgment. And this is what happened when they got there. The men of the city, in fact, all the men of the city, gathered and tried to sexually assault the visitors. And when Lot came to their defense, the mob threatened him and his family also. In fact, the only reason why the men of Sodom did not follow through on their violent and vile plan was because the angels supernaturally blinded them and protected themselves and Lot's household. Now, if you're going down to investigate whether the city is sinful and something like this happens to you, there's enough evidence of the wickedness of the city for God to destroy it the next morning, which is what happened. What I'd like to do is to take a closer look at the hostile city. What was their sin that is illustrated in that instance, but what was it that warranted the destruction that came the next day? There are three dimensions, three layers to their wickedness. Some of them might surprise you, so let's look through it. First, let's notice the social dimension of Sodom's sin, the social dimension. They try to take advantage of the defenseless visitors to the city. And by the way, that's not the first time that happened. You noticed, right, when they come into the city and they say, we're going to sleep in the town square, Lot right away insists that they go into his house. Lot insists that they don't stay out in the open at night because he knows what usually happens at night in Sodom. So he invites them into his house. He wants to protect them. He wants to make sure that they're okay till morning. And yet, the people of Sodom gather and come to his door and demand that he would turn the visitors over to them. Now, the visitor, the foreigner, the stranger has no rights in the city. And so the powerful men of the city play on that. They know they could do that. They know there's more of them. They're more powerful. They could abuse someone who has no rights in their city. There's a social problem here. There's a culture of oppression and injustice that is at play here in Sodom. The first indication that that was the case comes from the Lord himself when he 
talks to Abraham and he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah has reached me. Outcry, this word, that's, that's a very specific word. It means that the victims are crying out to God for justice. Now, for example, in Genesis 4, Abel's blood is crying out to God from the ground. And when God heard this outcry of all the people who were hurt and oppressed and treated unfairly by the powerful men of Sodom, God responded. The prophet gives the reason for Sodom's destruction in Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Sodom was an unjust, oppressive culture that routinely took advantage of the marginalized people. What almost happened to the angels was not an unusual thing. Notice that all the men of the city, young and old, come out for this. The city was set up in a way as to allow the powerful to take advantage of the powerless. Now I bet for most of us, social injustice is not the first thing that comes to mind when we, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet scripture is clear that there's a dimension of their sin that is social, that is collective. Now looking at the social dimension of their sin might help us come to grips with the punishment that it received from God. You see, God heard the cries of the victims and God took the side of the victims. He avenged the suffering of the defenseless and restored justice. Many people today are asking, how can a loving God destroy a city? Perhaps a better question is, how can a loving God not protect and avenge the victims of injustice? If you've wrestled with this idea of divine punishment, this is one of the keys. Because we're always thinking about the person who is being punished. But there are more people involved. What about the people that were treated unfairly, that were hurt? What about them? Those that are crying out to God and asking God to help them, to protect them, to restore justice, to punish their oppressors. For the modern skeptic in our culture today, so many of us, we proclaim this belief in justice and we long for justice to be restored, for things to be done fairly and rightly. And yet, this idea of divine punishment seems strange to us. But, if hell is off the table, so is justice for the oppressed. You can't do both. You can't proclaim justice as a value 
and yet also say, but a loving God will never punish. Those are two contradictory ideas. We either believe in justice and then accept that there's a possibility of God being involved in intervening on behalf of the victims, or we say there is no justice at all and God doesn't punish anyone. That's the social dimension of Sodom. So if you've struggled with reading these passages of God raining down fire on a city, this is one of the ways that helps us come to grips with that. God takes the side of the victims. There's also a sexual dimension to their sin. This is what many of us associate with Sodom. And it's clear in our text, the men of Sodom did not just threaten violence on the male visitors, but they threatened sexual violence on them. Jude 1.7 helps us understand that. Jude says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude is saying that part of the problem was sexual immorality, was the pursuit of an unnatural desire. Of course it is talking about homosexuality. Of course it's talking about all sorts of other deviant sexual behavior. The Bible is clear about these things and we need to be clear as well. The wickedness of Sodom combined the individual sexual sin, specifically homosexuality, specifically violent sexual behavior, but also the communal social sin of oppression and injustice. Now it's easy for us to emphasize one aspect over the other. Mostly probably because of, on our political, based on our political views. The liberals decry social injustice. The conservatives decry individual depravity. But the Bible does not set the two aspects apart. The Bible brings it together. The individual and the communal aspects of sin. And to see how the two relate, there's no better place to go to than Romans 1. So I'd like you to actually turn to Romans 1. What we see in Romans 1 is that both sexual dysfunction and social dysfunction are the result of spiritual dysfunction. That is the third aspect of the wickedness of Sodom, spiritual dysfunction. Now look at verse 24 in Romans 1. Let me just read the passage. And as I read it, follow the progression that the apostle lays out before us. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, you follow the progression? One, they, let's just say we, this is talking about all of humanity. One, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. That's the spiritual dysfunction. Worship is disrupted. Two, we've exchanged natural relations for unnatural. In this case, there's a specific example of exchanging the heterosexual relationships for the homosexual. Now that's the sexual dysfunction. And then three, because relationships are no longer natural, as evident in the sexual sphere, they are no longer natural anywhere. That's where we get murder, envy, strife, deceit, slander, gossip, disobedience of parents. That is the social dysfunction. Now do you see how the Bible explains sin in such a complete and comprehensive way? Once worship of God is disrupted, once our relationship with God is no longer the lens through which we see ourselves and others and define what reality is, changes start taking place in the very depth of our hearts. Sexuality, the sacred part of the self, is no longer defined by God. Instead, it is used as a tool in constructing the new self, first in secret in the flights of a developing imagination, then in relationships with others. Sexuality is that deeply personal part of the self that nonetheless has the potential to define our relationships with others. Now you see how it progresses from the spiritual to the personal, to the sexual, to the interpersonal. Having rejected God, we now reject His view of ourselves. We are now free to make ourselves in whatever we wish. Sexuality is just one area where the newly constructed identity without God gets to show itself. So what happens to our community then? If we have already assumed the authority to create our own self, our own identity, and then create a reality that fits our new self, we adjust everything around us to who we have made ourselves to be. Now, is it really that surprising that given the opportunity or power and influence over others, we would use that for our own benefit and oppress and manipulate and abuse others. There is no possibility of a just society if we continue to affirm the self as the highest authority. There is no possibility of creating a just and fair community unless we give up on this idea that the self, as defined by the self, is supreme. So what is the sin of Sodom? Well, they were a hostile city. They were hostile socially. They were hostile sexually. But most importantly, they were hostile spiritually. The men of Sodom were trying to physically assault 
God's representatives because they have already spiritually assaulted God Himself. They were not welcome in strangers because they have not welcomed God. They were worshippers of self, so naturally they neglected social justice and created their own sexual norms. Underneath the despicable behavior of the men of Sodom towards the angels lay the hostile heart, the heart inhospitable to God. Now, while the degree of our hostility towards others and the limits of our sexual deviance may vary, not everybody as wicked as someone else. There are degrees to that. All of that, nevertheless, comes from the heart that rejects God. The story of Sodom is our story. If you've read that story looking down on them, you don't know yourself. You don't know your own community. The story of Sodom is our story because we too have hostile hearts. Remember when Lot tries to convince his sons-in-law to go with him, to flee the destruction of the city, right? He comes to him, he, he's coming out of this, this traumatic experience, he comes to them and he says, we have to go, God is going to judge the city, we have to go. And they think he's joking. They think he's fooling around, that it's not real. Their hearts have rejected God. And even the news of, an, of, of judgment that is coming immediately does not break him out of the self-constructed identity that is void of God. The thought of, the thought of God is so far from their minds that the only explanation they can come up with is that Lot is simply joking. Now how is your heart? How open is your heart to God? Listen to how Thomas Chalmers describes that the unconverted person, person without Christ, has the same feeling towards God as when he shuts the door on the most unwelcome of his visitors. Get the picture that Chalmers is painting here. The reason is that the inner man... Busied with, other, busied with other objects, would positively be offended at the intrusion of the thought of God. It's because to admit Him, with all His high claims and spiritual requirements into your mind, would be to disturb you in the enjoyment of objects which are better loved and more sought after than He. It is because your heart is occupied with idols that God is shot out of it. It is because your heart is after another treasure. It is because your heart is set upon other things. Whether it be wealth, or amusement, or distinction, or the ease and the pleasures of life, we pretend not to know. But there is a something which is your God, to the exclusion of the great God of heaven and earth. The being who is upholding you all the time, 
and in virtue of whose preserving hand you live and think and enjoy is all the while unminded and unregarded by you. You look upon him as an interruption. You get the picture. You're at your house. You're doing something you enjoy. Perhaps you're having dinner. And a stranger knocks on your door with an unreasonable request. That's what most of us feel when a thought of God comes into our mind. We feel interrupted. We feel disturbed by someone who does not belong in our life. Does that describe your heart? Even as you're sitting here on a Sunday morning, are you just trying to get through this so you can get to something you really love to do? God is an interruption to your Sunday. You kind of feel that you have to do it to keep Him at bay. And yet, He is an interruption, a disruption, a distraction on your life. That is the heart of the issue. Friends, before we can address someone's sexuality, before we can tackle issues of racial and economic inequality in our own community, before we can even understand what happened in Paris two days ago, we must deal with the hostile heart. With the heart that is set on rejecting God and exalting self, how easy it is for us to locate evil in someone's sexual lifestyle. Let the conservative hear me now. Or in the injustice of local or even global policies. Let the liberal hear me now. But the greatest evil is in my own heart. I have a heart that is inhospitable to my God. That's evil. Far worse than someone's sexual choices. And far worse even than someone's murderous plans. What is the sin of Sodom? It's our sin. It's hostile hearts working themselves out in creating new sexual norms, in creating situations that are oppressive for others they have no rights, where marginalized are treated unfairly. That's our story. Those are our hearts, those are our lives, those are our communities. What do we do with that? Well, the story in Genesis 19 ends with the angels rescuing Lot and his two daughters, and his wife, sort of. They almost have to drag them away before the city is destroyed. Notice how Lot is hesitant to leave, and yet the angels just pull him away. And so they survive. The city that rejected the divine messengers is ultimately and finally rejected by God in judgment. And only those who welcomed the messengers are saved. Now that's our story. It ends with the salvation of some 
and a destruction, utter destruction of the hostile city. But this story is part of a larger story. Many years later, another messenger would come to a city. Do you find it interesting that God decided to interact with us as a visitor, as an outsider, as a stranger? When Jesus came, this is how he came. How many times in the Gospels do we read about Jesus coming to a particular community and getting rejected by them? Sometimes with a threat of violence. John 1 verses 11 12 summarizes it well. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God comes into the hostile world as a visitor, and our eternal destiny is tied to whether we accept or reject this divine visitor. Now the difference between what the angels did in Sodom and what Jesus did in Jerusalem is crucial. Please pay attention. Jesus came to the hostile city, but instead of protecting himself and getting out before God's judgment came, like the angels did, he stayed. He remained in the city and experienced the ultimate hostility and rejection by his people. He was unjustly tried as a marginalized person without rights. He was unfairly tried and sentenced and executed like so many before and after him, the powerless oppressed by the powerful. Not only was Jesus rejected by the people, he was rejected by God. He stood between the judge and the guilty city and took the punishment on himself. Mystery of mysteries. God punished by God on behalf of sinners. Jesus stayed. Amazing love. Right? Amazing love. What happened on the cross was much worse than what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah the next morning. Jesus experienced total and ultimate rejection, wrath, and judgment of God. And he did that for the sin of the hostile world that has just rejected him. Jesus stayed in the city. The angels left, but Jesus stayed in the city. Jesus stayed for me. Such love can soften my hostile heart. Such grace can mend it. Now, here's a fascinating thing. Because Jesus stayed and suffered with the hostile city and for the hostile city, he has become the host as well as the guest. Now, this is an amazing thing about the Gospels. When you read them, you realize that often... Jesus is welcomed as a guest, but quickly assumes responsibilities of the host. For example, John 2, Jesus is invited to a wedding in Cana, and yet it is he who provides the wine. That's the host's job. 
not the visitor, not the guest. Especially after the resurrection, this role of a host becomes dominant in his ministry. Remember, Jesus meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They talk. He explains to them what actually happened in Jerusalem. They invite him to their house for dinner. But it is he who takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. After the miraculous catch of fish, the disciples get out of the water and see a charcoal fire and Jesus cooking breakfast for them. The one who came as a visitor, rejected by his people, rejected by God himself, has become the host, has become the one who is inviting us into a relationship with him, the one who is welcoming us into his family. This is the gospel. Those who welcome Jesus quickly learn that it is they who have been welcomed by God himself. The visitor is really the host. In Revelation 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Jesus is the stranger at the door, asking you to let him in. But it is he who will prepare a feast for you once he comes in. Jesus comes to us as a stranger in need of hospitality, and yet we discover that we are strangers to be welcomed and accepted by Him. Jesus sought me as a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, bought me with His precious blood. Would you welcome Jesus, this divine visitor into your life, would you accept this divine messenger warning you of the certain judgment and yet calling you to follow him into safety? Would you take him seriously? And as you, if you do that, as you do that, you are being accepted into his home, into his family, into the safety and joy of his kingdom. You are welcomed by grace because Jesus stayed in the city for you, because He has experienced the ultimate rejection so you could experience the ultimate acceptance. We respond to Jesus not in our own power or based on our own accomplishments. When we come to Him, we bring our hostile hearts with us. We bring our confused sexuality with us. We bring our broken communities to Him and we are embraced by God on behalf of His Son by grace by sheer and pure grace this is where when I talk about these things <laughs> I feel like my only recourse is poetry is songs because we can only relate to these things on that level so let me read a poem by George Herbert, in his famous poem, Love, he describes this meeting between the soul and Jesus and being welcomed by Him by grace. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust 
and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, for I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, said love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Is that your experience of being summoned into this, this feast where Jesus is presiding at the table and saying, you don't feel worthy to be here, but I made you worthy. You come with a hostile heart, confused sexuality, and a record of oppression. But I have made you worthy to be here. I have made you. I have redeemed you. And I am now welcoming you here at this table because it's my table. Have you come? Have you been welcomed at that feast? When grace breaks into our hearts, it breaks up our self-centeredness. It breaks up our desire to define ourselves, to set up new norms for ourselves. It breaks up our tendency to see others as means to exalt ourselves. Our experience of the grace in Jesus must make us hospitable. Let's apply this idea of being welcomed by Christ, by His grace. Let's apply it personally and corporately. The application of today's sermon is becoming hospitable. We must be a hospitable church. Now, of course, when I speak of hospitality, please don't, don't misunderstand. I don't, I don't see it in terms of you know, Martha Stewart's norms. You know, I'm not talking about a carefully planned and scheduled in advance dinner party with appetizers, seasonal napkin holders, and lovely parting gifts, likable guests with whom you hope to exchange funny anecdotes. No, I mean the biblical idea of hospitality. I mean loving, welcoming, accepting, and forgiving others, some of them strangers. That is biblical hospitality. It's being loving and welcoming and accepting and forgiving of others. And it's rooted in our acceptance with God and His grace, His great work of saving us through Jesus. It's amazing how often the command to accept others is tied to God's acceptance of us. Leviticus 19, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. Why? This is the reason. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And God rescued you. So you would treat others as natives because God 
treated you as a native and rescued you even though you were a stranger. Romans 15, verse 7, we read, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How am I to treat others? As Christ treats me. He welcomed me, so I welcome others. Colossians 3, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Why on earth would I forgive somebody who treated me badly? Because I treated the Lord badly and He forgave me. That's the motivation. You see how it's connected. Be hospitable because Jesus is hospitable. Forgive because Jesus forgave. Accept because Jesus has accepted you. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because He loved us, His enemies. Because He prayed for those who persecute Him. The Gospel changes us. It enables us to accept others and even forgive those who have sinned against us. This week's Time magazine cover, the cover story of the magazine is about forgiveness in the wake of the Charleston Massacre. As you may remember, on June 17, 2015, just a few months ago, 21-year-old Dylan Roof came to a Wednesday night Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He went to a Bible study where he was welcomed. Motivated by racial hatred, he opened fire and killed nine people. Now what's amazing is how some of the people who lost loved ones responded. Here's what a daughter of a woman who died said to her mother's killer in court. She said, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. That is amazing. The world marvels at a response like that. This is not at all to negate the grief and the process of dealing with the pain of loss. But yet, there is also forgiveness. Another man, the husband of a woman who led that Bible study, said, I would just like him to know that I forgive him, that my family forgives him, but we would like him to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, Give your life to the one who matters most. And just so there is no confusion as to who he means, he says, Christ, so that he can change him. And change your way so no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. In the midst of that tremendous pain, at least some of the people are able to forgive in Christ's name. That's a radical Example of forgiveness. Another example is what took place after the horrific tragedy almost 
Nine years ago, on October 2nd, 2006, at an Amish one-room school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, Charles Carl Roberts IV shot ten girls between the ages of six and thirteen, killing five before, returning, before turning the gun on himself. One sociologist who wrote a book about this observes, I think the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service at the cemetery. Several families, Amish families who had buried their own daughters just one day before, were in attendance and they hugged the widow and hugged other members of the killer's family. Now these are real stories. I don't want you to feel like this is outlanders, this really happened. But they are examples of radical forgiveness that even the world is surprised at. And they write stories and they publish magazines about it in order to show the power of the gospel in someone's life. But most of the forgiving happens in normal, day-to-day, mundane circumstances. Most of the accepting and welcoming happens in regular life on a regular Sunday at church. So how are you doing with hospitality, with acceptance, with forgiveness? Has your heart been so transformed by God's grace that it is now open to strangers, to those in need, to those who cannot repay you? Is there someone in your life right now that you need to forgive? I'm making it very specific. Are you thinking of a name? Are you thinking of a person in your life, in this church, in your family, in your community, that you need to forgive for Christ's sake? How are we doing as a community, as a church? Are we a hospitable church? Are we welcoming to visitors, to outsiders, to strangers? What do we need to change to become more hospitable? I'd like to finish with this. Last night, we had a wonderful time at our Thanksgiving dinner. Let me be very clear. I loved it. It was great. Sitting there, eating the food that so many of you worked hard at preparing, enjoying the food, talking to others that are there, also panically trying to control my children at the same time, enjoying everybody's presence and fellowship. This is not a criticism of what happened. Please don't take it as such. But a thought came com- kept coming into my mind. Who isn't here that we need to welcome? I am thrilled that we filled the gym with people. Right? It was great. And I was happy that everyone who was there was there. And I enjoyed it. But, going back to the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, I ask myself, who do we need to compel to come in that God's house may be filled? Let's be thinking and praying about that. Who needs to be extended an invitation? Who needs to be compelled 
to come into our community, our lives, our church. Who's missing here? So even as you walk to take the bread and the cup at the Lord's table, think about who you would like to be walking alongside you. Think about who in your life needs to be forgiven and accepted and embraced. We're going to come to the table together. And as you come, you come to God's feast where Christ our King presides. The one who came as a stranger into our world, a visitor that we rejected, has now, after the resurrection and his ascension, assumed the role of the host. And he is now calling you to come and partake of the feast that he has set at this table for you. Jesus is calling you. If you are his, if grace has broken into your life, if you've welcomed him, you have become a child of God and you are welcome at his table. If you are not his child, please, implore you, let me beg you to consider Jesus today, to welcome Him, to accept Him, to respond to His invitation to let Him into your heart. I pray that today would be a day that you will remember as the day when you met Jesus, when He came into your life and He has become the host of your banquet. As you come, we're all going to come forward. As we sing, you're welcome to take the bread and the cup right up here and eat and drink right up here so you can leave the cup back here when you're done. Or you can take it back to your seats and you can meditate more and reflect on the grace of God in Jesus. If you are unable to come here, we do not want you to miss out on this feast. There will be an elder who will distribute the elements if you can't make it down here. So raise your hand so we know you're there and you would like to take communion with us. Let me pray. As I pray, the musicians are going to come up and we will prepare our hearts for meeting the Lord at His table. Our Father, we praise You that you are a God, though rejected by us, relentlessly continuing to pursue us. That you are a God of grace, a God who came into this world as a visitor and stayed. Jesus, you stayed. You were rejected to the uttermost so we could be accepted to the uttermost. Your grace prevailed through death, in your resurrection, you have proclaimed yourself to be the king, the one who throws this banquet for us. Lord, we confess that we are people who are by nature hostile to you. Our hearts do not want to welcome you. And yet, as we meditate on what you have done in Jesus, live in a perfect life, as a marginalized, oppressed person, being unjustly condemned, being sentenced and executed for our sins, and yet rising from the dead in victory, 
and ascending to be with the Father to continue to intercede and pray for us. As we think about that, that kind of love softens our hostile hearts. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, please continue to do the work of changing our hearts, of mending them, because they are broken. And we come to you and we know we're a mess, and so we bring it all to you. And we pray that you would help us, that your grace would break in, that your grace would permeate and change us more and more. We remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do it together as we worship.